All right, you guys can turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while since I've been over here, so thank you for having me. Okay, Romans 12. If you will look with me, Romans 12. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll just read the first couple verses at this point. Romans 12. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I I don't know if you realized when you came in this morning, but this is a pretty momentous Sunday for us. You have just finished Romans 1 through 11, 11 of the hardest, most theologically challenging chapters you will find anywhere in your Bible. You did it. You made it through hardest stuff in the Bible. And now finally, chapters 12 through 16, we get to talk about application. Chapters 12 through 16 is the application of everything that you learned in Romans 1 through 11. So in 12 through 16, you're not going to see a lot of deep, complex theology. You're not going to see any long discourses on Israel's history. You're not going to see any explanations of election or depravity or salvation or any of that. You're just going to have sweet application. 12 through 16, just sweet application, but application that is based on everything that we learned in chapters 1 through 11. 1 through 11 is the foundation for 12 through 16. It's the motivation of it. You'll notice right in the beginning, verse 1, notice what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by or in view of or because of the mercies of God. All of the application of chapters 12 through 16 is based on or motivated by the mercy of God. Now, what is mercy? What does it mean to have mercy on someone? Mercy is when you withhold punishment that someone deserves and you give them grace instead. Now, how has God shown us mercy? Well, remember chapters 1 through 11. Uh, Chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 3, what do we deserve from God? If God gave us what we deserve, what would that be? Well, wrath. God would punish us in his anger. Why? Because we are sinners. We are all sinners who have freely, willingly chosen to rebel against God. But in mercy, God doesn't give you what you deserve. Instead, what does he give you? He gives you grace. He gives you his son, Jesus Christ, chapters three through five, who died in your place, who took your punishment in your place as your propitiation so that God could offer you eternal life, the gift of justification. Chapters 6 through 8, in mercy, God gives you his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come live inside of you and sanctify you, growing you in righteousness. Chapters 9 through 11, God gives you hope, hope through the, the history of how God has dealt with Israel. He has always been faithful to Israel, and that's proof that he will always be faithful to you. And so God has given us outlandish, outrageous mercy. He has been merciful to you in every way. And that mercy comes to us as a free gift. There's nothing that you have to do to receive that mercy from God. You just have to receive it. Just believe, just believe that Jesus really did die for your sins, that he really did take your punishment in your place. Believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and you receive all of God's mercy as a free gift. You get all of it for free if you simply believe. So chapters one through 11, it's about the glorious truth that all of God's mercy comes as a free gift. But Chapters 12 through 16, it's a free gift that should motivate us to respond, 
to respond by giving our lives to God. The idea of 12 through 16 is that because God has done so much for us, how can we not respond to him in obedience? And Paul lays out just really quickly three big ideas in those first two verses. I'm just going to throw them up on the board real quick, but Brian is going to teach through these in detail next week when he's back here. But just in short order, verses one through two tell us that three concrete ways in which we respond to God's mercy is first, we present our whole selves to God. That's verse one. You present yourself to God as a sacrifice, as a, a sacrifice of worship. That's something you do every day. You give him yourself. And if you're giving him yourself, then that means application two, right there at the beginning of verse two, you don't give yourself to the world. You don't give your heart and mind, your things to the values of this world. Instead, application number three, you allow yourself to be transformed by the power of the spirit. The spirit transforms your mind so that you see as God sees, you love as God loves, you care about the things that God cares about. Again, Brian will cover these in much more detail. For now, what I want you to do is just focus right there at the end of verse two, the summary of this initial application, the end of verse two. Here's what it is all about. All of these things, these three big applications are driving you, moving you so that you may prove or or approve or practice what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's the big idea. God's mercy comes to you as a free gift. Nothing you have to do to earn it. You can't pay God back for it. It's a free gift. But that free gift should motivate us to respond by doing that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When I step back and I think about what God has done for me, how much of a sinner I am, how ungrateful I am, how selfish and prideful I am, the sins that are so often tempting me when I think about that and then I think about what God, the creator, gave up for me to save me, I am overwhelmed. The creator of life gave his own son. There's no limit to the sacrifice of what God freely gave for me. When I think about that and meditate on the limitlessness of God's mercy, it moves me and motivates me to respond by practicing that which is good and acceptable or well-pleasing and perfect in the eyes of God. So mercy is free, but it motivates us to respond. And in chapters 12 through 16, all of 12 through 16, Paul is fleshing out for us what it looks like to live a life that is good and acceptable and perfect in the eyes of God. That's 12 through 16. Paul describes in very concrete, practical steps what it looks like to live a life that is well-pleasing in the sight of God, a life that responds well to God's free gift of mercy. And so Paul is just going to lay out these these big steps that we're to take in life to live a well-pleasing life to God. Brian is covering the first one today over at Southwood. He'll come back over here next week and cover it. That's verses three through eight. For us, we're going to jump to the second one. The second concrete step, second big idea of what it means to live a well-pleasing life, verses 9 through 13. So look with me at verses 9 through 13. Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. 
contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. These are pretty big commands. You could preach a sermon on every single one of these commands. It's kind of tough to wrap all these together. And, and you look at this list and you wonder, what is Paul doing here? Seems like all these unrelated commands, just shotgun commands, boom, 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 boom. There's no connecting words. There's no apparent flow of thought. When I first read this passage, the, the image that came to my mind was an exhausted Paul. A Paul with sweat on his brow because he just finished writing Romans 1 through 11, and that is heavy stuff. And he's tired. It's hard for us to even read it. Imagine how tiring it was to write it. And the guy is exhausted. He is worn out. And so with his last bit of energy, he throws out every little last thing he can think of. Just boom, 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 boom. That's actually not what's going on because the ultimate author is not Paul. Ultimate author is the spirit and the spirit doesn't get tired. So the spirit has an idea here. It has a big thing that unites all of these seemingly unconnected commands. And that big idea is right there at the beginning. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Let love be without falseness, not for show, but real. What the idea is that unites all of this together is genuine love or what in our culture we might call true love. That's the big idea. You could think of it as the title under which everything else fits. Genuine love is the big idea. And the rest of these verses, Paul fleshes out. He explains what does it look like to live a life of genuine love? But first we must ask, what is love? What is genuine love? What is true love, biblically speaking? I'm going to answer that by pointing to you to a a couple stories, one that was on TV, one that was in the newspaper. First, uh, a story, a show, that will help us understand what genuine love is not. You may remember back to the popular show Friends. At one point in Friends, Chandler Bing gets on his knees and he proposes to Monica. And in proposing, he explains to her why he loves her. And he says, then I realized the only thing that matters is that you, you make me happier than I ever thought I could be. Now, if you're watching that show, you could pretty much hear the collective sigh of everybody in America watching. Those are really sweet words, really romantic sounding words, but that's not love. That's not biblical love because Chandler's love for Monica, it's an emotion, It's a feeling. He calls it happiness. You make me happy. That's what our love is founded upon. And Chandler's love for Monica, it's it's conditional. It's conditioned upon how she makes him feel, that she makes him feel happier than I ever thought I could be. But what if 10 years from now, she no longer makes him feel that way? They have some fights. Things aren't going well. He no longer feels happy in her presence. Then the foundation of his love for her is gone because it was based on a conditional emotion. Finally, ultimately, his love for her is selfish. It's about what she does for him, not what he does for her. Now, this is our world's definition of love. This is how our society defines love. It's an emotion, a feeling, affection. It's conditional. It's conditioned upon what you give me, what you do for me. That's how our world defines love, but that is the exact opposite of how the Bible defines love. Let me illustrate biblical love to you by reminding you of a story you may have seen in the newspaper on Monday. This last Monday, the White House announced that Army Rifleman Leslie H. Sabo, who died in the Vietnam War, would be awarded posthumously with the Medal of Honor. On May 10th, 1970, Sabo and his platoon were ambushed by a large enemy force in Saison, Cambodia. 
Sabo immediately charged the enemy position and killed several soldiers. He then forced the enemy to retreat by assaulting a flanking force and successfully drawing fire away from his platoon members. Later, during an ammunition resupply mission, an enemy grenade landed nearby. Sabo picked it up, threw it, and shielded a wounded comrade with his own body, absorbing the brunt of the blast and saving his comrade's life. Although wounded, Sabo then charged an enemy bunker, receiving several serious wounds from automatic weapons fire in the assault. Despite his injuries, Sabo crawled toward the bunker and threw a grenade inside. The explosion silenced the enemy, but claimed Sabo's life in the process. And then the article concluded that Sabo's indomitable courage and complete disregard for his own safety saved the lives of many of his platoon members. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is love. That's true love. That's genuine love as the Bible defines it. Jesus put it this way. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, our army guys may not want to call it love, but that's what it is. This is genuine love. Genuine love is a sacrificial devotion to others. That's what love is. It is sacrifice. It is a sacrificial devotion to others. It's not an emotion. Now, emotions may be there. Emotions of happiness and affection may accompany biblical love, but they're never the basis of it. The basis of biblical love is a choice to sacrifice self for the good of the other. That's love. It's based on sacrifice. So if the emotion isn't there on a particular day, it doesn't matter. So it's never based on emotion to begin with. Biblical love is a sacrificial devotion to others. Biblical love is unconditional. It is modeled after the love of God for us. God's love for us is the exact opposite of conditional, isn't it? Because if his love for us was based on us meeting certain conditions, then none of us are ever going to be loved by God. Because none of us get anywhere close to meriting his love. We were his enemies. We're sinners. We fall so far short. God's love for us is by definition unconditional. He loves those who are not worthy of it. Finally, biblical love is inherently selfless. It's defined by what I do for you, not for what you do for me. Now, the tragedy of this is looking at what biblical love is and comparing it to how our culture defines love and seeing how blind our society is, how how far they fall short of true love, the idea, the concept of genuine love. If you ask most Americans, especially young Americans, what is love? What's going to come to their mind? Well, they're going to think about romance or sex. That's what usually comes to mind in America when we think about the word love, romance or sex. It's interesting, in ancient Greek, they had words for romantic love and sexual love. And the New Testament uses them hardly at all. Almost never. Why? Because those are not the primary ideas of love. It's interesting, the biblical authors, as they're trying to think about how to convey this idea of love, they chose a very rare word, agape. They chose it because it was rare, because it didn't have all of this baggage around sex and romance. They start with a word that no one knows anything about so they can build a new conception of love, love that is not based on emotion or feeling or romance or sex, but love that is based on sacrifice, on a sacrificial devotion to the needs of others. That's agape love. True love, genuine love is the love of God for us. God sacrificed his son for you. That's love. That God gave up that which is most precious to him for your good. 
True love, biblical love, is the college student who goes and hangs out in a nursing home so that he can listen to the stories of a widower, just to hang out with him. True love, genuine love, is the exhausted mother who goes into her baby in the middle of the night and sings a lullaby even though she just wants to collapse on the floor. True love, genuine love, is the person who pays for the groceries of that frazzled couple three spots back in the line at the grocery store. That's true love. That's genuine love. It's defined by sacrifice. That's the measure of true love, that you sacrifice to meet the needs of others. Now, by that definition, true love is going to be costly, isn't it? If it's defined by sacrifice, then it is inherently going to be costly to you. For Sabo, it cost him his life. For us, it's going to cost us time and energy and emotion and money and and things. True love is costly love, and so that leads us to ask why. Why should we love one another with genuine love, with agape love, if it's so costly? Paul answers that question in our other key passage this morning. Look at the next chapter, chapter 13. Why should we genuinely love one another? Paul tells us, look, starting in verse 8 of chapter 13. Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's why. Why should we love one another with this sacrificial love? Because genuine love is the fulfillment of the whole law. All of those hundreds of commands from Exodus to Deuteronomy are covered by the word love. If you love your neighbor, the person near you, whoever that might be, if you love them as yourself, if you are sacrificially devoted to them, then you got the whole Old Testament covered right there. You're good. Love fulfills the whole law. Some more reasons. Let's, some more reasons why love is so important, why genuine love is so essential to us. Because it shows us that we're Christ's disciples. It shows the world, the whole world, that we're followers of Christ. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not by our moral purity or by our political stances or by our theological acumen that the world will know that we follow Christ. How do they know? By how we love one another. And if if you want to know, what does Jesus mean by love here? John 13, what happened right before this? Something that happened right before Jesus said these words. He washed his disciples' feet. That's what he means by love. He got down on the ground as a servant and washed his disciples' feet. It was dirty. It was messy. Jesus had no right doing that. What in the world? He's a teacher. Jesus should have been being washed. But he takes the position of a servant to his disciples. That kind of love, when we serve one another sacrificially, that is what proves the truth of our message. When you college students wash the dishes, even though it's not your turn to do it, you did it last time, but you do it anyways, that shows the world that you're a follower of Christ. Husbands, when when you come home after a long day and you finally put the kids to bed and all you want to do is tune out in front of the TV, instead you go over to your wife and you give her a back massage, that is true love. Yes, amen to that. That's right. That is true love. You are sacrificing yourself for the needs of another. That demonstrates to the world that our message is true. I think if we were doing more of that, the world would be a lot more interested in Jesus. Because it's by our sacrifice that we demonstrate the truth 
of our message. So that's the second reason why we should put in the cost, the effort that genuine love requires. Third reason, because you can't love God otherwise. If we don't love one another, then we can't love God. John puts it this way, 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Then verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John's point is, if you say you love God, but don't love his people, then you are deceived or you're a liar. It can't be. It is impossible. If it's like, if you came and told me, Blake, I love you, but then you poked my kids in the eye. No, you don't love me because your injury towards them is as if you are mistreating me because they're my kids. So it is with God. If we don't love one another who are his children, then we can't say that we love him. It's real popular in in young culture and especially in Christian culture these days to try to divorce or separate Christ from the church. I want to follow Christ, but I don't want to be part of his church. I love Jesus, but I'm not real fond of his followers. Well, there's a lot about us that's not real pretty. <laughs> Certainly there's a lot about us that, that is not very lovely, but you've got to understand what you're talking about doing is impossible. God will not allow it. God will not allow you to love him if you choose not to love his people. No, you're, you're deceived or you're lying. That's not possible. You have to love us, accept us, warts and all, if you want to love God. Can't love God without loving his people. Fourth, final reason that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13 for why we must love one another. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul is saying is without love, your life is worthless. Without sacrificial love to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you might as well just go watch football because you're doing nothing good. You're not accomplishing anything meaningful for the kingdom of God if it is not accompanied by sacrificial devotion, by love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, the point of all this is to say genuine love is absolutely essential to a well-lived life. You cannot live a life that is pleasing to God, that is honoring to God unless you choose to love God's people. Okay, so we need love. We need to truly, genuinely love one another. But how do you actually do it? How do you live this kind of life, a life of true love? How do we live that out? That takes us back to the original passage. Look back at chapter 12. Back to all of those staccato commands that we read that seemed unrelated to the idea of love. Those commands tell us, practically speaking, how to live a life of love a life of agape, of true love. And, and it starts in kind of an odd place, right there in, in verse nine, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. But that doesn't seem related to love, does it? It seems completely out of left field. Until you remember, sin and obedience never affect you alone. The consequences in sin and obedience are, are never private. They, they don't stay with you. When you choose to obey or when you choose to sin, it affects everyone you care about, doesn't it? When you choose to obey the Lord, then that brings blessing to your family, your spouse, your kids, your friends, the fellow believers in Christ. When you choose instead to sin, to rebel against God in some way, even if it's private and no one else ever knows about it, still, it brings a curse. It brings pain to your family, your your wife, your, your kids, 
your friends in, in the body of Christ. A couple examples, just real simple one. Parents, when, when we lose our temper and blow up at our kids, it does hurt us, but it hurts them too, doesn't it? It hurts them in serious ways, significant ways. Uh, men, when we give in to lust, maybe you do that privately and, and your spouse, your friends, they never know about it. You keep it completely private, completely secret, but the consequences affect others, don't it? The consequences of, of giving into lust, it affects your marriage. How can you be loving and intimate to your wife when you gave into this sin? And it affects your kids because how can you be the spiritual leader of your home if you're giving into this private sin over here? When you give into sin, it affects others. When you give into obedience, it affects others. So if you say that you love other people, you must walk in obedience. And Paul uses really strong verbs here, abhor evil, literally hate it, despise it. His point is don't live with it. Don't accept even a small, even a private little bit of sin over here in your life. Don't accept any of it because it is so destructive, not just to you, but to everyone you claim to love. Hate it, detest evil, instead cling to good. And and that verb cling, it's usually used actually of sexual intimacy. It's about an incredibly close bond. Paul's point is pursue obedience with every fiber of your being. Seek it, run after it. Because that is how you love others. The first way that you love the people next to you, whether they're family or your kids or your friends or fellow believers, is by detesting evil and fleeing from it and instead clinging to that which is righteous. Second practical application that Paul gives us, beginning of verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And the verb there, be devoted, it's philostorgos in Greek. It means the love that a parent has for a child. The devotion of a parent to his or her offspring. Be devoted in brotherly love. That's the Greek word Philadelphia. Uh, And interestingly, both of these Greek words, you notice they begin with P-H-I-L. That prefix in Greek, it's talking about family. Paul's talking about words that were in secular Greek only used for your family. This is how you love your biological brother. This is how your parents love you. That's the idea he has in mind, but he extends these words beyond your biological relations to this family. This point is your brothers and sisters in Christ are family. The people in this room are not your friends. They are not your acquaintances. They are your family. Paul wants to change our perspective on church. You see, if you think about the person behind you in the pew as your family, it changes the way you think about them. It changes it so that you're no longer thinking about them um, through the grid of like camp relationships. I don't know if you ever went to summer camp as a kid, but at summer camp, you just hung out knowing that you're never going to see these people again. So if there was someone that ticked you off, you just ignore them because you can get away with that for a week, can't you? You just never have to hang out with them. So that's all right because camp's going to come to an end. Or if there's someone that you got along with, well, you spend every moment with them because, you know, you you have that affinity together. Well, camp relationships are one thing, but family relationships are different. If you don't like your biological brother, it doesn't matter. You're going to see him for the rest of your life. So you kind of got to work it out. You got to learn to love him and hang out with him because you see him all the time. And that's the idea. We're going to see each other for a very long time, like all eternity. We're going to be together for all eternity. So we got to learn to love one another. If I hurt you or you hurt me, we can't ignore it because we're going to be attending family reunions in heaven for eternity. So we got to work it out. We got to work on this thing because we're family. 
We're gonna be with one another for eternity. View one another like that. If you will see the person next to you and behind you, in front of you, as family, as someone you will be with for eternity, it changes the way you relate to them. That's Paul's point. Let's love like family. Third practical application he gives us. Put others first. Second part of verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. Literally, Paul is saying, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul's point is, there should be a competition among us. A competition where your goal is not to be first, it's actually to be last. The competition should be, how can I raise everybody else up above myself? How can I put your needs, your good, your status, your desires above my own? In Philippians 2, he makes it even clearer. 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Put the needs and desires of the person next to you above you. What Paul is challenging us to do is to willingly sacrifice our rights and our desires to take care of the needs of those around us. Let me illustrate this for you. This is what the deacons do every other Wednesday morning. And deacons meet up here at 6.30 a.m. to plan out Sunday morning service for us. Well, 6.30 a.m. If they're meeting here at 6.30, then they're probably waking up at 5.30. And to be honest, I think 5.30 a.m. is a time that no one should ever see. It's an ungodly time of the morning. <laughs> but these guys, these guys willingly give it up, even though they have the right to sleep in. These are all guys with hard jobs. They have the right to get whatever rest they can before they go off to another hard day of work. And yet they willingly sacrifice that right to rest in order to serve us, in order to prepare Sunday morning for us. That's love. That's biblical love. They put our needs above their own. Small group leaders, this is what you do every Sunday night. You sacrifice Sunday night to come and prepare for this week's lesson. Sunday night. That's the last moments of your weekend. That dying gasp of your week and the last chance you have to tune out and watch TV before the work week begins. You have a right to rest. That's, that's reasonable. And yet you willingly sacrifice that right to meet the needs of your group. You put their need to be in the word above your need for rest. That's love. That's what it means to put the needs of others above your own. Okay, so that's Paul's third particular step. Put the needs and rights of others above your own. Sacrifice your rights and desires for others. Fourth, equip yourself for love. Look at verses 11 and 12, which at first these seem to have nothing to do with love. Uh, starting in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit. Seems really unrelated to love. Actually, though, what Paul is doing in verses 11 through 12 is he is telling us how it is that you grow as a loving person. If you want to be a loving person, a person who loves others sacrificially with God-like agape love, then this is the foundation of it. And he begins with the source. If you want to love others, you have to turn to the spirit. And in those words we just read, let me give you kind of my interpretive translation. In verse 11, Paul is saying, do not be lazy in your duty to put others' needs above your own. Instead, be fervent through the spirit. And it's interesting, spirit in Greek, pneuma. Uh, you always have to ask yourself, does it mean human spirit or Holy Spirit? 
You don't know in Greek. There were no capital letters in biblical Greek, so you can't tell whether he means little s or big s. You gotta decide from context. And so you look at the context and you look at what else Paul wrote in the New Testament, and I don't think knowing what Paul wrote that it makes much sense for Paul to tell us to be fervent, literally to inflame ourselves in spirit. No, Paul didn't look at it as something we could flip a switch and all of a sudden you are fervent in love. No, what did Paul tell us to do when we need to grow in love? He told us, look to God. Look to God's spirit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love. Begins with love. Fruit of the spirit, those supernaturally good things that God wants to produce in your life, they come through the spirit. If you want to love other people well, you have to rely upon his spirit. Only his spirit can help overcome the laziness that is innate in us and inflame us to love one another, stir us up, empower us, to love one another. So if you want to become a loving person, you have to learn to rely upon the Holy Spirit, to depend upon the Spirit to work in and through you to empower love because you can't do love yourself. This whole sacrificial devotion thing, that kind of runs against human nature, doesn't it? You're trying to love people next to you through your own power, you're going to fall way short. So we don't have that ability. You got to rely upon the Spirit who can love them through you. Okay, so you depend upon the spirit as your source of love. Then Paul talks to us about the goal of love right there at the end of verse 11, serving the Lord. What Paul's doing here is he's reminding us that I am to love you not for your sake, but for Christ's sake. I love you not because of how you will respond to me, but because of Christ. This is really important. This is really freeing. Because when you sacrificially love someone, when you give up something big to care for the needs of someone else and they either don't notice or don't really care, that's pretty crushing, isn't it? That's that's really hard on you when they don't seem to appreciate it. Paul's reminding us though, wait a minute, true love, it doesn't do it for the other person, it does it for Christ. What you've sacrificed is not for the other person, it's for Christ, it's out of service to him. And the good thing is Christ notices Jesus doesn't miss a thing. He notices and he loves it. Love is well-pleasing to Jesus. He loves it. He will reward it. What he is reminding us, he's freeing us by reminding us that when I love you, it is not for your sake. It is for Christ's sake. When I love you, I'm not doing it so that you will respond to me. It doesn't matter whether you even notice it because it wasn't for you. It was for my master. It was for Jesus. And he noticed and he cared and he will reward me. So Paul's reminding us, if you want to love one another well, don't do it because the person next to you is worthy or so that they will notice it. Do it for your Lord. That's who we are loving for. Finally, Paul tells us where to turn for our fuel for love. How do you build this love? How do you grow this love? Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Again, three things that seem so unrelated to love, but this is the fuel of love. If you want to be a person who loves well, then these three things need to characterize your life. You need to be a person of hope. A person who rejoices in the confident hope you have in Christ. You need to be a person who perseveres in trial and suffering. You persevere through the power of the Spirit. And you need to be a person devoted to prayer. You're constantly going to God to meet your needs. If hope and perseverance and prayer characterize your life, then you are a person who is empowered to love. But if they don't, If you don't have hope, if you don't have perseverance, if you don't have prayer in your life, then you're not going to be able to love well. You got an empty tank. You can't love us because you don't have the strength to love us. In my home, um, Julie and I communicate this idea to one another through the analogy of putting your mask on. 
We'll ask one another, have you put your mask on? And what we're talking about is an airplane. Remember, if you get on an airplane, the the stewardess walks you through the emergency procedures and, and tells you if there's a sudden loss of pressure, masks will fall from the ceiling. Put your mask on. And if you're a parent, what do you do first? You put your own mask on first. If you put your child's mask on, chances are you will pass out in the process and now you're not doing any good to your kid. Well, Julie and I will tell one another, put your mask on first. What we mean is, Julie, you need time to get away with the Lord, to to be filled up by the Lord, to be strengthened in the Lord. That's the only way you can love Luke and Gracie well. Or Julie will be telling me, Blake, you need some time off from work, time off from kids. You need time with the Lord so that he can fill your tank. What Paul's telling us is sometimes the most holy thing we can do as parents is hire a babysitter so we can get out of the house and get rest, get time with the Lord, time of refreshment so he can fill our tank enabling us to love well. Okay, before I get to the fifth and final application, I want to ask the men who are going to serve communion to head to the back and get that ready. Have the privilege of taking communion with one another today. Fifth and final concrete application that Paul gives us. How do you live a life of love Right there in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Both of those phrases are talking about meeting financial needs, meeting practical needs like shelter and clothing and food. And Paul talks about hospitality because in the ancient world, that was a big one. If you traveled from point A to point B, there were no hotels for you. There were inns, but they were really pretty immoral places. So if you're a Christian, you can't use those. So you are dependent on the hospitality of believers you never met. So Paul points us to to meeting practical needs. And interestingly, when he says practice hospitality, that verb literally means to pursue it, to hunt it, to run after hospitality. In other words, don't wait for a needy believer to knock on your door. Go seek out needs that you can meet. What Paul wants us to realize is that often we show love by what we give financially. When I'm talking to students, often I'll challenge them. If you want to know what you love, look at your schedule and your pocketbook. Look at your bank account. That will tell me what you love. What do you do with your discretionary income? Do you give it to meet practical needs? That's love. Love sacrifices my material goods, my financial goods to meet the needs of other people. The Beatles famously wrote, can't buy me love. Money cannot buy love. That is correct. But we need to understand money can give love. That's the power of money. Money can give love. If you want to give love to someone in a concrete way, give them money. Give them what they need to meet their needs. So practically speaking, if you know of an individual or a family who's having a rough time right now financially, they can't make ends meet, I challenge you, if you have resources, give. That may mean that you have to give something up, maybe something that you really don't need, you just wanted. You may have to sacrifice that. That's what love is. Remember, it's sacrifice. You sacrifice what you want, but you don't absolutely need to take care of the needs of others. And, and best is if you can do it anonymously. A gift card without your name on it left in their mail. Cash, a cashier's check with no name on it. If you can give anonymously to meet someone's need, that pleases the Lord. That is love. Now, if you don't know of somebody that you can give to, I encourage you, give to the church. We're here to meet people's needs or give to one of the community partnerships we have with Aggie Pregnancy Outreach or Hope Pregnancy Center or SOS Ministries. Give financially to these Christian groups that are meeting practical needs in our community. Give. This time of year, you're about to get your tax return. If you don't need it, maybe give some of it away. Maybe share some of that bounty with those who are in need. That's love. Love sacrifices. Love gives. That's what we're to do for one another. 
We're to love one another by being sacrificially devoted to one another. But Paul wants us to understand that's not something we're to do out of obligation. Please don't love the person next to you because you have to, because it's a duty. Paul wants us to love one another out of gratitude. And that takes us back to the passage that Lance read earlier. What I want to leave you with this morning, 1 John 4, 10 through 11. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love one another because God first loved us. Because God loved us in the ultimate sense, he sacrificed his own beloved precious son for us to set us free from sin. That's what motivates us to love. You love out of gratitude towards God, not out of obligation. Now that blessed truth that God so loved us, that he first loved us is what we're gonna celebrate this morning in communion. I don't know if you're aware, but in the early church, when the apostles were there, they actually called communion, what we're about to do, the agape feast, the love feast. Because this is when we gather together around the bread and the cup to remember and celebrate the magnitude of the love of Christ for us. That's what communion is. It's our chance to reflect upon and remember as a community the agape love of God for us, that he gave his son for us. If you're here this morning and, and you're still not so sure about this Jesus thing, about salvation through grace, I would just ask, take this time to reflect upon the magnitude of God's love for you, about what it means that God says he loves you from eternity past. He has always loved you and loved you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins and rise from the dead. If you have believed that message, if you have received the free gift of God's mercy, then I encourage you as the elements pass, take this time and spend it in gratitude. Spend it thanking God for the limitless extent of his love and mercy for us. That's what communion is about. Let's celebrate that together as the elements pass. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, we are so thankful that what we just did was not just eat a little piece of bread, and drink a little cup of juice. We thank you for what's behind that. That together we got to celebrate the truth that your own beloved son, the infinite almighty creator, Jesus Christ, willingly gave his body and his blood for us. He willingly endured torture and crucifixion on our behalf to set us free from sin. And then you raised him from the dead, overcoming sin and death and Satan for us, Lord, so that we could have hope, so that we could have life. Thank you so much for the limitless love of Jesus Christ. Lord, we celebrate that this morning. We do lift up anyone here this morning who has not yet come face to face with that love. Uh, If there is something that's holding them back from believing that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, please, Lord, open their eyes. Please let this be the morning of their salvation, Father. 
And for all of us who have believed that and received your gift of mercy, I pray, Father, that we would respond in love to one another, that we would live lives that are well-pleasing to you by being sacrificially devoted to one another, that we would give to one another like family, that we would put the needs and desires of, of others above our own, Lord. And we pray that all of this would happen so that the world would see the truth of Jesus Christ, so that they would see the truth of the gospel message. Please, Father, through your spirit, we pray that you would be at work in us, convicting us this week of anything that is holding us back from love, anything that is preventing us from living these lives of true, genuine love, Lord. If it's sin, if it's some rebellion, some lack of faith, whatever it might be, Father, please convict us and remove that from our lives so that we can be people who truly love like Christ has loved us. We pray, Father, that Grace Bible Church would be a beacon of light to this world through how we love one another. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good day.